we go. A couple, uh, couple announcements, just a couple things to remember. Um, there, there are a number of seminars and retreats and stuff coming up. I know the women's retreat, I think the sign-up deadline is Sunday. Is that right? Are, there, are, there, are you close to being packed for that thing? Okay, so a little room. Um, if you haven't signed up, you want to sign up, sign up. Uh, by Sunday would be great because it's the next weekend. Also, there will be uh, two, two set, well, one is a Saturday seminar, one's a continuing ed course here. The Saturday seminar is by uh, James Busher, a young guy, professor at the seminary, who is going to give a Saturday seminar on icons. And that is coming up, what's that? No, it was, we were going to have it, and then um, it was supposed to be the weekend of Bob Williamson's funeral. So we, we canceled it, um, and he was very gracious, and he was a parish pastor for 12 years. I mean, he gets that stuff happens, and you need to reschedule. So we've rescheduled him for April 25th or 6th, whatever that Saturday is. Um, so come to that. It's all going to be on icons, but it's going to be, he's very, very good. He's in kind of an engaging teacher, and uh, I think he's going to preach that weekend also. Also then a continuing ed course, so this is different than a Saturday seminar, by uh, Dean Wenthe, who's the president of the Fort Wayne Seminary. He's coming out here May 6th through the 8th, and his is going to be on scripture and sacramentality. So if you kind of of imagine all the stuff that Peterson has said and that we've talked about now for, well, probably a multitude of years, but specifically seeing Jesus all over the scriptures and and kind of the sacramental nature of all of the scriptures, if if you're intrigued by that, Come to Wenthe's thing. I think it's like 150 bucks for three days. There are books you can buy if you want, but you know if you're not taking it for credit, you might just want to come and listen, and that'll be great too. So May 6th, 7th, and 8th. But you'll see sign-ups all around. Uh, attend that if you would. If you would, that'd be great. Also, yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Finally, then we're going to buy the new hymnal, the actual book, when we go to Wheaton Bible Church. The price goes up from like 18 bucks to $25 in three weeks or four weeks, which is, that's a huge increase in price. So we'd like to get them ordered before that. What we're going to do is, and you'll see it in the bulletin this weekend, but we're going to offer it up to the congregation to order them on behalf of someone, in memory of someone, for, in gratitude of someone, and we'll put those, those stickers in the front of the hymnal. So if you'd like to do that, find a yellow envelope, I think market hymnal, Drop in a check for however many, however many you would like, you know, buy as many as you want. Um, and if you could do that in the next couple of weeks, that'd be great before the price goes up. Okay? I, yeah, they should be in the pew. And you'll see, a, you'll see a whole thing in the bulletin about it. So just take a look at that. The, one other thing is our new member class is going to be starting up in May, May 17th. We're going to run it on Saturday mornings from 830 to 10. You know, it's not open just to new members. So if you'd like to come, uh, you know, come find us. It looks like we have a fairly large number. Um, you know, two, two falls ago we had 40, and then when we did it in the spring we had 40, and then this past year we had a lower number. But it looks like we, we could be up around 30 or 40 people again, at least taking the class. So if you'd like to take it, let us know and we'll get you in. Okay? Yeah, good. Thank you. All right. Uh, if you look at page 205... Actually, look at page 204, I think. Donna, you had a question about what page was that on? Page 204. He talks about how we try to avoid 
Where are you where are you at on page two oh four? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Well, we we touched on that briefly. Um, that's a very that's a very good question. God uses the statement is, uh, Carol. If I don't, um, if I don't say the question, remind me. I actually listened to it because I didn't. I, I for my first thought was, well, I don't know if I'm that bad, but it's bad. It's real bad. Well, I would have given up too. Um, so I need to I need to state the question for those listening on the radio. That's exactly right. Now some of you are louder than others, um, which is helpful. Can you? They can, they can barely take this once. They can't take it twice. Are you kidding me? That's right. Okay. So the the question is. From the statement uh, on page 204, explain God has used the stuff of our sins to save us from our sins. I think the best example is in Numbers 21, and I think we did touch on this briefly, but Numbers 21, you remember they have a problem with the snakes. All the people have sinned, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Numbers 21, the people have sinned. And uh, if you look at verse 4, if you have a Bible, look there. If not, that's fine. People have sinned, um, and the Lord sends the snakes. Or basically, it's not that he sends the snakes. He allows the snakes to run rampant. All the people are bit. Um, as Luther says, uh, they were the color of fire. They were red snakes. That's why they were called fiery serpents. And what does the Lord use to fix the problem? Do you remember, Donna? Put a snake on a pole. Exactly. And then Jesus says in John 3, just as the snake was lifted up, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up and crucified. So, the Lord works to fix the problem. Uh, he fixes the problem with the problem. The problem is the snakes, and he fixes it with a snake. The problem is sin, and he fixes it with a sinner, Jesus. So I think, you know, you don't have to read too much into that. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus becomes sin without saying Jesus becomes sin. Exactly. Exactly. So he uses the stuff of our sin. He would probably say um, he uses flesh and blood. He uses a real human being to save us from the things of our sin. Okay? Does that help? All right. How far did you read? (laughs) How many of you didn't read? (laughs) Didn't read? Yeah. It's all right. Like I always say, this is no different than confirmation. This is just... And here's the thing, we're still going to confirm them? That's right. Um, Well, where did you get up to? How many of you don't even have a book today? (laughs) All right, well, you read it 212. Okay, well, let's work then between, let's, what's that? We're here. That's right, presence is the first step. Let's work from page 201. 5 to 212. And I, I, you know, I've gone up to about 217, 216, so we can go anywhere in there if you want. But he begins with this section on ritual. And I guess my first question is, if you read this, um, do we still have this, this understanding of ritual? Specifically, that ritual and reality then, because he would say ritual is reality. 
is larger than me. It's larger than me. If you look at page 205, last full paragraph, about halfway down, for reality is not only larger than me in my immediate circumstances, it is also beyond my understanding. So it's something that's bigger than you, and it's mysterious in such a way that you can't comprehend all of its ins and outs. And obviously here he's talking about the Eucharistic liturgy as a ritual. He'll go on to talk about Gregory Dix, who is um, an Anglican uh, liturgical scholar, who, you know, he has his own faults, and we can talk about that if you want, but uh, he goes on to use the ritual of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving as the Eucharistic ritual. But what's great is he says it's beyond our, our comprehension and even our reality, in a sense, and it's also mysterious. So my question is, do we still have that understanding of ritual or of liturgy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that even we went through this non non denominational retreat. Yeah. Scott and I did, and we you know, we were one of the few Lutheran types. Yeah. Or Catholic types. Uh huh. And it was interesting because there's no liturgy, so to speak, and yet everything that was done in the little mini worship service mm-hmm. had just smacked of the liturgy, and they were creating their own. Yeah. Saying, well, we're non liturgical. Right. We had this sort of makeshift. Right. We had a bell ringing for some unknown reason. Really? But I, I thought it was kind of interesting that they got rid of all the, what we usually consider traditional things, and replaced them with yeah. other, so there's this need, even among people who say they're not liturgical, right. to have a right or a method or thing exactly. that's make it otherworldly, I guess. For them, that's right. For them. Um, you know, this is, it's, it's interesting. I just spoke to someone the other day on the phone who was, came up on our new member perspective list. Um, and you can get a lot of good pastoral work done on the phone with prospective new members because they just want to ask you everything you normally ask in a new member class but in 45 minutes on the phone. So, um, you know, there was, it was very interesting. She, she thought um, that she had something that we wanted, namely another member or uh, someone who would bring some contemporaryness to the church, and we should kind of want that in, in our place. What was so funny was she placed herself in a very real way above the liturgy or above the ritual because she wanted to, t- to determine what, what would go on and what wouldn't go on. So, for instance, she said, we go out to this other church, and I love it because I know, what I'm gonna, I know what's going to happen. I know what to expect. I feel good afterwards. I mean, everything started with I. So after about 20 minutes of this, I said, you know, the real problem is there's no mystery and there's nothing bigger than yourself in the place you're going right now. You understand all of that? I mean, there's, there's something about the liturgy that, it, and this is why it appeals to postmoderns, it's beyond themselves. There's something mysterious about that. Now for, and this is, to, this is not to bang on baby boomers, but for a lot of baby boomers, that just doesn't appeal to them. That just doesn't appeal to them. Um, but once she finally realized, this is 40 minutes in, I mean, this is, I mean, this is longer than I talked to my wife. Um, <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> um, Forty minutes in, she realized that we had something that actually she wanted, and suddenly she was intrigued by us. She thought I had. She thought she had something that I wanted. What she realized was I didn't want it at all. But when she realized the joys of the liturgy, or she began to comprehend its mysteriousness, 
Suddenly, I had something that she wanted, and now she wants to come. It's very interesting to see how the tables turn. Mm-hmm. Let's see. <laughs> if you look at um, look at page two ten, it's very interesting to see what he does here with Gregory Dix and his shape of the liturgy, the taking. And this is I don't know if you've ever seen this. Probably if you've ever seen a Roman Catholic mass, you know, there's the procession of the gifts. They bring the bread and wine up to the altar. Well, it's well. Here's you. You may have your chance someday. It's in. Uh, it's actually in. It's in the. In the ELCA's hymnal, um, and it's a very ancient practice. This is not you know some Roman Catholic thing because what it is, whether or not you know it, your your offering goes to pay for the bread and the wine. I mean, you've paid for it. They're your gifts. We bring them to the altar. So if you can just read this and and think about when the pastor is setting the table, that's kind of the same time period, but. You know, the gifts are brought forward. The pastor takes those then, um, our gifts for the Lord. That's why we sing the offertory. What shall I render to the Lord for all his goodness to me? Um, and then after that comes the blessing and then the breaking. But I thought his interpretation of the breaking was very interesting here on page 210. You, you know, Lutherans typically don't, you never will see us break the large host at the altar in, in, in front of people during the, if you go to a Reformed service, they may have a large piece of bread. And this is how it will usually work. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and I was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and they'll snap the host, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, the reason they snap it is because it's reenactment. This is not the body and blood. We're just reenacting the Holy Supper, or the Last Supper. So Lutherans were so adamant about not breaking the host that they actually, in the, at the time of the Reformation, they would bake a steel bar into the large host so that it couldn't be snapped. I mean, this tells you, that in their mind, in fact, <laughs> in fact, um, some of the Lutheran fathers would say it's not a Eucharist if you snap it at that point because it's just completely reenactment. So you also don't see us, you know, some pastors will make the sign of like, or make the you know, gesture of taking when they say take, eat. It's just, a lot of that is reenactment, Okay. So the breaking part, he doesn't interpret it that way. He talks about essentially the Christian being broken at the altar, which was very interesting. Look at page 210, the very top there. Um, We are all surface, all roll, polished and poised performers in the game of life. But the Jesus who saves us needs access to what is within us and so exposes our insides, our inadequacies, our cover-ups. At the table, we are not permitted to be self-enclosed. We are not permitted to be self-sufficient. The breaking of our pride and self-approval is not a bad thing. It opens us up to new life, to saving action. We come crusted over, hardened into ourselves. We soon discover that God is working deep within us. Beneath our surface lies and uh, poses to bring new life. We cannot remain self-enclosed on this altar. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The body broken, the blood outpoured. So part part of the breaking action is not the host, but it's your own hard-heartedness. That's why you come to the altar. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is what it's all about. And that's part of um, what Luther would call the great exchange. You come up and you spill out all your stuff on the altar. Here's all I got. And in return, he gives you all that he's got. He hold, this is the thing. Jesus holds nothing back from you at the altar. Everything that he has and everything that he is he actually delivers to you in his flesh and blood. So, you know, the, the, the way to prepare for all that 
is to spill out everything you have and everything you are. You know, I wasn't a big fan ever of the tearing of the teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we started doing it, and I have to say, I've become a fan of it. I always thought it was like an interruption. Right. And it struck me as other people start chatting. Right. But the way we do it, it's like the start, the starting of the breaking down. Yes, exactly. It's like, okay, I'm going to break myself down in front of mm-hmm. Donna and, and say everything's all right between you and me. And right. And then we're going to ascend to where everything's going to be all right between you and God. So I see it in a completely different way than right. just like this handshaking of, hey, how's your morning going? Right. Yeah. Jill. Mm-hmm. And bow and have the supper and then bow again. Um, and in the last probably two years, that has changed from it's still ritual, but now it's like literally like it's not a bow. It's more of like a, a take me. Right. It's like a limp kind of. I'm here and and. Me. Right. Whereas I mean, I've been doing that my whole life, and it's it's a different place now. And I'm and I expect that in mm-hmm. ten years there's going to be something else that I've been doing as ritual mm-hmm. in my life that will shift <coughs> in that way. It's yeah. It's you know one of the greatest moments for me was well two things one for me that kind of same emotion or experience whatever you want to call it was when at my ordination when I went face down on the ground it was like man you bring nothing to this I mean it's not about it's not about you and and the prideful part of you every day wakes up and says I mean this is for all of us you say it is about me um, but you go face down in you know cruciform shape and you realize it's not about you yeah yeah exactly the church is the church is much bigger than anything you could ever bring and at the same time then, and I didn't have this experience till Christmas Eve at the late service, you know, we, there are some services where you know we're going to go all out. The Easter vigil, we're going all out. And we actually didn't this year. We held back a little bit with a variety of things. Um, but at Christmas Eve, we went all out, and during the consecration, not only did we have bells, which is historically Lutheran, but after each consecration, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me, I genuflected at the altar, which means you go down on one knee, and that was otherworldly for me because you realize that what's just come to the altar is much greater than anything you've ever got. And it was not, it was not meant to be, and I think some people took it this way, it was not meant to be pompous or um, you know, uh, what people would call it, to be sacerdotal, like it's all about the priest and not about the people. That was not what it was about. It was about I am in, I am in humble adoration to the body of Christ. That's what, and, and I've got nothing to bring. Um, so if we could get to that point where we see it not as kind of bread worship or Roman Catholic, but we got nothing to bring. We're being broken down. This is the action of breaking. You know, that would be, that'd be a great place to be. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Life apart from Christ, 
discussion. A life protected from disruption is harmed like a life exempt from pain and humiliation and rejection. This broken experience is even trumped by separation with the antagonist of the heart. We discovered this first in Jesus, the body death of the blood for us to make it for the And that's what you were talking about a couple of weeks ago. We're asking <coughs> going ourselves to acceptance of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Yeah, we were, the comment is we were talking, well, you know, the prayer upstairs for those who are suffering was that you be joined to the sufferings of Christ. And that, that finds its fulfillment in the Eucharistic action. And this is, this is just part of my life. I mean, yeah. I mean, I could see my sister and her family, you know, really devastated mm-hmm. by this cancer that she's going through. And um, just, I, I don't think that we realize that life is hard. And sometimes it's very long and very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. We're so, hard, we're so easy to get focused on other things and the power of self that we just, we just fail. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and like we, we said upstairs. I mean, we have to see this as part of life. I mean, even suffering. Yeah, it's but not. It, that's right. It's not, it's not the way things are supposed to be. It's not natural. Death is not natural. And neither is suffering. But it's the way things have to be post-fall, and in Jesus. But the joy is, and this is why Easter is so glorious, resurrection always wins the day. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. I like the way you describe each part of this, uh, you know, the, the, the four words. Yeah. When we were in our Bible study on Wednesday, we were talking about, um, what was it? Um, what's the name? <laughs> um, but that, Ichthus. Yep. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All. Yeah. All of the um, all of the feeding stories are all Eucharistic. I mean, all of them. The action is almost always. Precisely. When he speaks, it just I mean, it multiplies. No, Every. Every Yeah, but every, every feeding story, every bread story has the same action. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it out. And then it finds its, it finds its fulfillment in the Emmaus text. That's it. I actually, I, I'm intrigued by your peace comment about sharing the peace. Here's why. I, I like it a lot. I wish, I wish I could actually go down and share the peace with other people with whom I have disagreement or... Yeah. I mean, that's just the nature yeah. of sinful world, even in our own congregation. Yeah. But for me, actually, sometimes it's just an almost like, like fortuitous. Like, yeah. That someone who I know really yeah. is at odds with me right. is sitting right behind me. Well, and what's, uh, yeah. In the service, I think it's, it's, it does, I think it's like the open 
It is. Yep. Well, my here's here's my only fear. I mean, it's it may be a little. I mean, you guys all know who has tiffs with who people and or with don't, other people. Don't come to me. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we say everyone's gonna? What was that thing? Everyone's gonna name their kid Jill. <laughs> yeah. Um, I Josh will beat the list. Josh will top that list. I promise you. Um, but I I think it would be hard for me to get away with it be, because. Uh, maybe people wouldn't notice, but if I walked down and shook someone's hand, they would say, ooh, I wonder what's oh, going on there. Like yeah. I mean, that would be, talk about, well, yeah. Seen, the problem I've seen this go, like, when, the great example, we visited a Lutheran church when we were on vacation, and they, they, during the feast, they played the theme song from Cheer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, okay, everybody, and then uh, they went, dun, 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 and I looked at Claire and go, they're not playing the theme song from Cheer. <laughs> Yeah. These happen. I was like, "Ooh, I don't. It's it's too ripe for things mm-hmm. to go bad." But right. the way we have it, we're only saying one thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying, "Hey, how, we we just say the one thing." Right. What about what about doing? Some, I mean, I know you say, "Peace be with you," and we say, "And with your spirit." Uh-huh. Uh Yeah. I mean, usually if the if a, you mean at the end of the communion liturgy. Oh, after the yeah. Usually, if a pastor shares the peace, the response is in with your spirit. Yeah, but that happens right around there. That happens. I mean, the pastor starts it. That's always the way it was in the church. The pastor starts the peace, and then you know, you, traditionally, it gets started from the pastor to the deacon. He walks down and shares it with, and it goes all the way around the congregation. And there's a story of a I don't know if it's Cyril of Alexandria, someone, two guys wouldn't share the peace, and they wouldn't start the Eucharist until they shared the peace. Because that's yeah, exactly. But I wonder if we could ever get to that point where we could be mature enough to not say what's gaining doing down there shaking so and so's hand. We encourage our children to make it right with people that are I would. That would be so freeing for me. That'd be great. That's right, yeah. So from church it starts with Well, I'm not, I'm not, think, I mean, I'm, I. No, I mean, maybe there's other ways you could do that. Oh. Uh, I mean, if you happen to come through where you yeah. were at. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But it's nice to do it right before you go to the supper. Yeah. What if I ki- I could kiss him. That they did in the early church. I mean, were you 
I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I don't. So this is this is everything I think about. This is that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand that actually. I would be too if someone came to me in the pew. It's hard. It is hard. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. No, I, I completely, if I wasn't, I mean, I'm trying to put myself in other people's shoes and say, what would happen if so, because be, especially if you knew the significance of the piece and it was squaring things up, it doesn't mean, it, it's, it, there's a difference between being right and, and maybe not, it still may not be best. It is right in theory. Well, it's, it's pastoral to say I want to square things up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, right. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> Do I want to shake their hands? How many people? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, how many people are in your congregation generally? Because I go there on Sunday, every Sunday. Yeah. They generally mature enough to get that. No. I mean, how many people are really doing it? You know, oh. Oh, I would... Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think it's screwing up just for money. It lets you start it and do it every Sunday. Yeah, right. But it's still the same thing. If you and I were at odds and you were coming down to shake at somebody, right. But not for everyone. Well, the person who you sh- the person who they would know the person who you, whose hand you shook they would know. Um, a couple things. You're exact. Donna said, um, you know, the peace is shared from the altar, which it is. I mean, that's why you look. And I tell a ton of people that someone says, "I got a beef with so and so." 
There are two things you can do to get over that beef. One is you read the Psalms and you actually pray for those people by name. If you can begin to name the people who you despise in your prayers, it'll, it'll fix you. It actually, works. it actually works. And praying the Psalms not against them, but praying them out of pity for them or in mercy towards them. Exactly. And, and, and then to also, and this is what I tell a lot of people, and I think you know, some people who I've spoken to have begun to get this, and it's life-changing. You actually have to see people through the host and the chalice. That's why I make a concerted effort to hold the host up before. That's what you look through now. You look through the host. And so when I share the piece, and I think the other guys do as well, you hold it up, and I actually I don't see anything but the host, which at that point is not just bread. It's the body of Christ. Um, but I think your point is a good one. You know, the number one rule is the number one goal of a pastor is to bring comfort to the terrified conscience. And if you go down and shake someone's hand, you may not be bringing comfort to the terrified conscience. They may have a terrified conscience, but it may not be comfort you're bringing. So is it right? Yeah. Um, is it best? Probably not. <laughs> well, that could, that could be part of it, too. Yeah. You know, when, um, this is just a little piece of the Catholic liturgy that I've found very helpful at communion times. Uh, Lord, I'm unworthy to receive you, but just say the word and I will be healed. Is that something that the liturgical liturgy does? Or is that uh, it, was in, it, was in, uh, it was in Luther's liturgy. If you, or, you know, you banged on, I think it was you who banged on me at the REC meeting about leaving my mic on for too long. Is that you? Who was it that said, oh, I, no. I'm kidding. It wasn't specifically. I know. Well, I catch myself sometimes. And then someone said, when you, sing, when you sing the liturgy and your microphone's on, you're four seconds behind. Someone said four seconds. Four seconds is like an eternity. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't want to name names. I need to go shake their hand. Anyways. I have a similar comment, but I have The point is, if you, if you listen carefully, um, this tells, a lot, this tells a lot about our pastors, okay? Nelson, at the altar, guess what he prays? Okay, so what do you think he prays? Now, I, there are multiple prayers you can pray at the altar as a celebrant. He prays, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let thy gifts to us be blessed. Amen. Which is a very Eucharistic prayer. But it, it just, I mean, that's like, that's him. That's what it's... <laughs> I pray in Latin. At the altar. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Here's <laughs> like my wife. No. Yeah. Ecce Agnus Dei. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to your supper. That's part of the Catholic liturgy. And then right before, well, there, there's actually, right before the host is given, or before I give it to myself, Lord, I am not worthy that you come under my roof, but only say the word, my soul shall be healed. Amen. That's right out of the Gospels. So, can you pray that? Yeah, you can pray all that stuff. Um, I mean, there's, this is like, this is your life. That's your life. So that prayer is completely appropriate. I think Luther retained it in his, in his, in his mass, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, please bless the agenda. In Momentum, yeah. their anniversary, we went down and he, he was in the middle of his sermon, he said, I don't usually do this and it's not written down. And he asked the pastor, he said, are you communing every week here? And the guy goes, we're just about to start doing that. Yeah. And he said, let me just tell you folks that when we started doing that, 
he was talking about what keeps the church going. Yeah, right. It's not its people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's God and the Eucharist. You know, mm-hmm. that was his point. But he said things have changed in our congregation since we started having like an actual change in mm-hmm. the in the people because of regular Eucharist. And I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. It was kind of an aside, but it. Yeah. Um, I mean that Ray Newberg, who is who probably grew up, and I don't I don't know for sure, but probably grew. Well, I know this. I do know this. Grew up in a generation where he's admitted communion was once a month or three times a year, four times a year. He said when we started having the supper every week, he said I thought it would just I thought it would be a burden. He said our congregation has gone. Our congregation went like this. That's what it did. And it's the same. And the point is, the Lord has even more gifts to give. It went like this after we had fifty people come to confession in one week. It went like this. There was a change. It's not necessarily numbers. You know, then it, some people have left because of these changes. That's right. But it's the people that stay or that are coming are coming for a different because of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. When are we going to get her the supper? She did want it. You know, in the, ortho, in, the, in the Orthodox Church, actually, Emma now can say body and blood, which... The next step is just giving it to her. Um, <laughs> uh, Sounds like my house. <laughs> the only way. <laughs> And was looking through it, and she goes, "Listen, this is for you. The blood is." (laughs) 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 That's a kid that gets it. That's right. Well, it's it's you know this this will be a good this will be a good lead into next week, and then what time do you end? Ten fifteen. Oh, good. We got a we got a few minutes. Um, This would be a good lead. what, 10.15? Someone said 10.30. I it was 10.15 because of childcare. Oh, but, but Carla's not here today, so we can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing. The next section is on hospitality. And, I, and here, this is what I was going to talk about had we gotten there. Um, eating meals together as a family is one of the most Eucharistic things you could ever do. And when you see that as an extension of the altar, that your life as a family, the altar in this congregation is more important than your family at home, but... Your family at home is molded and shaped by the Eucharistic meal. That'll transform the way that you view even sitting down at dinner together. This is why, you know, I, I said, um, I don't know when I said it, but to a group of parents, I said, you want to be better Christians, eat dinner together. Because no one, you all say we're going to the Eucharist, and then no one ever sees their families. Um, so, you know, leaving the dinner table and even seeing that as just a, just a hint of the Eucharist there, is perfectly okay. That's what it's all about, which is why Jesus, all over the scriptures, he always sat at table and ate with people. And there is nothing better. Um, and I don't like, you know, I don't like having a ton of people over. But when you finally sit down at table with people and you're drinking wine and you're having good food and the conversation goes on, that is, that's what the Lord wants for his church. That is church. That is church. So the more you can do that, the more you can encourage that, um, the better off you'll be. Okay? Oh. Um, I think so. 
24th and 25th. Are we not are we not having it next weekend because the retreats that weekend? Excuse me. Okay. All right, let's we'll do, we'll do it. Renegade group. But why don't you start? Um, why don't you st- read? Re- why don't you read the give part from page two two eleven, and read through? Can you read two eleven to two twenty two? That'll that'll take you out to the end of that section. We well, probably won't get there, but um, at least you've got stuff read. Okay. All right. Let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.